Hey, my name is Paige, one of our servant leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope you can lean in and enjoy this message. I want to jump in today as we just pick up where we left off last week, week number two of our series, The Spirit in You, as we're looking at what happens when God's Spirit invades the hearts of His people. And if you're newer to ethos today, or maybe you're a bit skeptical about God, or maybe this is just your first time in a while, understanding what we discussed last week is going to be imperative as we build off of that. So if you weren't here, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that, because it really was kind of a foundational message as we move forward, not only in this series, but in the one to come that we're going to kick off in September called Why Church Matters. It's sort of a cousin series to the one that we're in right now. But today I want to talk from a message in what stands in our way of more? And by more, I'm simply saying, what stands in our way of having more of God or seeing God manifest himself more in our, more in our lives? And I want to discuss as we kind of go through today, seven things that I, that I think, and there's so many more than this, but seven things that I think intentionally here for us as a church stands in our way, stands in your way, and even probably more importantly, our way as a community, the the small part of what God has asked us to do is we get to be a part of his body here in our local community. What stands in our way of seeing more of God move? Let's, let's pray one more time this morning as we just invite his spirit in this place. Holy Spirit, we, we do welcome you as we sang a moment ago. And we pray that you would speak to us today, that you'd make clear the areas of our lives that we've allowed to remain hidden from you, that we've not offered over to you. And God, whatever... Whatever I prepared to say, I ask that you make up the distance between what I have prepared and what I haven't prepared. That you'd speak to the hearts and the minds of everybody in here today. In Jesus' name, amen. And God bless the Ohio State Buckeyes. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I and our kids, we were on a family vacation and we're swimming at this public pool. And it was pretty loud. Lots of kids splashing around. Like there's a love-hate relationship for public pools. Anybody else with me in here today? And for just a moment, I went under the water and I let out all of my breath and I sank to the bottom of the pool and I just sat on the bottom of this public swimming pool for, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds. It wasn't long. I quickly ran out of oxygen. And, and during that time, though, I, I come back up to the surface and Judah, my son, was watching me with his goggles on and he looked at me with kind of this confused look on his face. He said, Dad, how, how did you sit on the bottom of the pool with almost no effort at all. And I said, oh, son, I, I let my breath out when I went under the water. And so for Judah, when he was trying to get to the bottom, he had to kind of keep himself there, flapping his arms and legs. Naturally, he would just float up to the surface. But, but I told him, I said, son, you can let your breath out too, and it'll, it'll sink your body to the bottom of the pool. And so for the next four hours, <laughs> I'm not exaggerating with you. Truly, for the next four hours, that's all Judah did. <laughs> Dad, I, I learned how to sink to the bottom of the pool. I'm like, that's incredible, son. And he started asking me more questions. How does this work, Dad? And I, I began to explain to him, it's a little bit like a balloon or maybe even like a water bottle that has a, that has a lid on it. You can push it under the water. It's surrounded by the water, but until the water gets in it, it, it won't stay under the water. And I, I even gave him this illustration as there was a plastic bottle at the pool. And I, I said, it's a little bit like this particular bottle, son. You can, you can push it like this, but it'll just keep going to the surface. And I think it's a bit indicative of the way in which we operate in our lives with God. We're surrounded by God. I'm, I'm talking to Christians right now. 
I'm not talking to somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus, hasn't received him. I recognize that there are several of you in the room that would fall within that category. And we're so glad that you're here. And we don't just say this as rhetoric. We mean it when we say you belong here, regardless of what you believe. But I'm I'm telling you right now, I'm, I'm talking to the Christian who has said yes to Jesus you said yes to Jesus and you're surrounded by God and, and yes, you have the spirit of God dwelling within you, but you really haven't taken the lid off of your life to truly let what's surrounding you and even a bit of what's in you completely consume you to the point where it just is drenched both inside and out with more of God. See, the idea of having more of God is never about God. It's not on him. It's always on us. It's never been an issue with God. It's never been something of God's nature to say, I'm withholding something from you of my presence. No, God wants and has from the very beginning of time, one of his greatest desires is that you would experience more of him, that you would know more of him. In fact, you could say quite honestly that the entire story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the story of God moving nearer and nearer to his people. Think about it for a moment if you're familiar with the narrative that God creates man and woman in the garden in perfect fellowship or perfect relationship and intimacy with him, then sin enters the picture. And what once was holy is now unholy and that separates perfection from imperfection. And all the while though, God, just as his character demands, seeks to bridge that gap by initially having his people set up a temporary shelter called a tabernacle. Later then, he begins to dwell among them in a permanent temple. This is seen through the story of David and then his son Solomon. That is until then, Jesus was born of Mary and he was called Emmanuel, which can be translated in English as God with us. And as good as it was that God dwelt among his people in Jesus... God wanted even more to move even closer to him, even closer to us rather, not just to be among us, but he wanted to live in us. And now this is where for both the Christian and the non-Christian alike, because we're so familiar with what we can see, hear, what we can feel, taste, and touch, we, we kind of treat this as just like a mystery that can't be ascertained. And yet, because of the Spirit of God and the knowledge that he gives us and the spiritual wisdom that he desires to reveal to us, it can be ascertained. Just hang with me for a moment as we understand a bit more about God's character. And, and think about this for just a minute as it relates to maybe what you've been taught about God before, that he's mad at you, that he's angry at you, that he's always holding you at arm's length. No, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, God moved from dwelling among his people in the garden to dwelling among them in a physical tabernacle and temple to dwelling among them in Jesus to now living in the followers of Jesus, declaring that the people of God are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk more about that in two weeks, but this right here is the very reason Why Jesus said in John 16, as we mentioned last week, this is just a brief recap where Jesus declared, I'm telling you all the truth. It is good for you that I go to my father because if I don't go away, the advocate, another name for the Holy Spirit, won't come to you. Jesus is quite literally saying to us that God's indwelling presence, dwelling within us, surpasses God being among us in human form. Now, this is hard, though, for a lot of us to ascertain, to understand, because 
most of us are a bit underwhelmed with our experience of the Holy Spirit. And that's the reason why most of us, if we're honest in here today, if you were given the option for the Holy Spirit to live in you 24-7, 365, or for Jesus just to come and hang out with you for one day, most of us would say, I'll just take Jesus for the one day. And yet, that wasn't always true of God's church, God's people. The early church was not underwhelmed with their experience of the Spirit of God. The early church would not have replaced the Holy Spirit dwelling within them for Jesus dwelling among them. J.B. Phillips, who is widely known in the 20th century to be one of the more influential Christian authors, he actually translated the Bible into a modern English translation, and he wrote the book of Acts, or rather I should say he translated the book of Acts with a little bit of commentary in his book called The Young Church in Action. And listen to the words of J.B. Phillips. It's a little bit of a long quote, but just follow along with me. Lean into this for a second. He said, it is impossible to spend several months in close study of this remarkable short book, conventionally known as the Acts of the Apostles, without being profoundly stirred, and to be honest, disturbed. To the reader, is stirred because he is seeing Christianity, the real thing, in action for the first time in human history. The newborn church, as vulnerable as any human child, having neither money, influence, nor power in the ordinary sense, is setting forth joyfully and courageously to win the pagan world for God through Christ. He says, yet we cannot help feeling disturbed as well as moved for this surely is the church as it was meant to be. It is vigorous, flexible, for these are the days before it became fat and short of breath through prosperity or muscle bound by over-organization. Are you leaning into this? Listen to this last line here. He says, these men did not make acts of faith. They believed. They did not say their prayers. They really prayed. They did not hold conferences on psychosomatic medicine. They simply laid hands on people and healed the sick. He said, but if they were uncomplicated and naive by modern standards, we have ruefully to admit that they were open on the Godward side in a way that is almost unknown to us today. Open on the Godward side. J.B. Phillips is saying that when you study the book of Acts, you can't help but see a group of men and women who were open on the Godward side in a way that few of us myself included, if we're honest, are today. When I read that quote for the first time, I saw that open on the Godward side. It kind of disturbed me a bit. Open on the Godward side? That one brief phrase sums up the not-so-secret secret of the early church, a secret that hasn't changed one bit in 20 centuries, a secret that was modeled by Jesus and was intended to continue to be modeled by us. In fact, in Luke chapter three, we see this beginning with Jesus. Just hang with me. We're gonna give a little bit of a history lesson and we're gonna jump into these seven things that keep us from taking the lid off of our lives, so to speak. It says in Luke three that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus now is 30 years old. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven, the voice of the heavenly father said, this is my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. 
completely separate note for just a moment. Setting aside everything I'm saying, dads, can I tell you something? That modern psychologists have identified the three things that our kids need to hear more than anything else from their dads. I love you. I'm pleased that I'm your dad. And I'm really proud of you. Interesting, secular psychologists have said these are the three most important things for dads to say to their kids. God modeled that for us before modern psychologists ever identified that. Oftentimes it takes science a bit to catch up with what is considered sometimes to be antiquated Christian faith when in reality, our faith is far ahead of the time in which we live today. And the story goes on that in Luke chapter four, look at this. Now, that was a separate message I just shared. Okay, we're back in this week two, all right? So hang with me. He stood up to read. He stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was an Old Testament book that was written 700 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And Isaiah actually had 102 roughly messianic prophecies, meaning prophecies or declarations he made about Jesus, all of which came to pass 700 years later. Now, Jesus is reading this scroll and unrolling it. He found the place in it that's written, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me, Jesus is declaring this about himself, to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim this is the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what I'm getting at here is important for us to understand. Because after Jesus is anointed, and that's a really churchy word, especially if you didn't grow up in church. But even if you didn't grow up in church, as churchy as that word is, we all sort of understand the, you know, the, the meaning behind it. That he was given something that was not owed to him. He was given something that he did not have separate from having been given it. And in this case, he was given the spirit of God. What we discussed last week was the the the. The, the triune being of God, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He was given the Holy Spirit to empower him. And when he was, Jesus went about teaching and preaching, performing miracles, driving out impure spirits, raising the dead, giving hope to the hopeless, feeding the hungry. And we have to ask this question. How did Jesus do all of that which he did? Now, I don't have time to jump into all of this. One of the ways that he did it, and it is rightfully true, is that yes, he was God. Yet as we discussed last week, Philippians chapter two tells us very clearly that he set aside his privileges as God and came in the form of a man. And so, so the question needs to be asked still then, how did he do it? And here's the most obvious answer. He did it because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Everything he did was done because he had the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't emphasize enough, if you weren't here last week, listen to that to build the foundation as we continue to move forward together as a church family, as a community. But it's important for us to know that what Jesus did was done because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Before his water baptism, before the Spirit of God descended upon him for those 30 years, Nothing. No teaching with authority. No miracles. No calling of his disciples. It all started after the Spirit of God anointed him. 
That's why Acts 10 tells us, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. Remember, this all happened after he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil. He came to reverse the effects of the enemy. Why and how? Because God was, was with him. Here's why this is important for us to understand. Here's why, in one sense, I'm belaboring this point. And even right now, it's actually hard for me to move on because I really, I just desire that we understand this. This is important to know because what Jesus started was never meant to end with him. Too many of us pray a prayer, we walk an aisle, we give our lives to Jesus, and then it's, it is done. Like we're, we're okay and just, in one sense, sort of satisfied. Not really, but externally we're satisfied. We're just sort of looking the part, playing the role of Christi- Christianity, but, but never really leaning into the depth of our faith, never really allowing the Holy Spirit to fill us, all of us, never really offering to him and surrender to him every single part of our lives. See, the Father sent the Son, the Father in the Son sent the Spirit, and the Spirit today desires to send the church. But few of us are willing to actually be sent. And even fewer of us are willing to say, God, I want all that you have for me. I want the, the more. Jesus' life was not simply a case of evidence to convince you of his claims. It was that, but it wasn't only that. His life is an invitation to similarly see what it looks like when a human being is anointed with the Holy Spirit. His life was meant to be, in one sense, a glass study of saying that's what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit consume every part of your being. Jesus was the truest home that the Holy Spirit had ever inhabited because Jesus allowed the Holy Spirit to be completely himself. Jesus truly allowed the Spirit of God. I should say it like this. He truly allowed himself to be a vessel fully for the Spirit of God. See, in your home and in my home, we feel the freedom to be completely ourselves. In fact, when you go into your home, or actually I have to speak for myself, when I go into my home, every single day, my routine is the same when I get home. I get out of my clothes, and I put my comfiest shorts on. I put my most comfortable shirt on. I don't care how it looks. I don't care if it's paint all over it. I don't care if my shorts haven't been washed in three months. I know I'm getting real, but like, that's a true story. I'm like, I don't want to put those in the laundry because I might not get them back for another week, and they're my favorite shorts. And I want them, I want them, I want them when I need them. And that's every day I get home. I take my socks off the minute I come in the home. It drives my wife a little bit crazy because sometimes my socks are found all over the home. Why? Because I don't really like the feeling of cotton. I just don't, anybody else with me? Ben, you're with me? I just don't like it. Come on, Jeff. I don't like it. So I, as soon as I get home, I take my socks off. I just, wherever I am, I just put my socks there. They'll be there in the morning. I'll put them back on then. You know? Put my feet up on the table. I go to the, I go to the refrigerator. And come on, I always look for my Kirkland brand seltzer water. Pomegranate is my favorite. Grapefruit's my second choice. 13 cents per can. Come on, I'm paying big money for that stuff. I drink myself a seltzer water. I put my feet, my feet with no socks. You don't even want to see my feet, but I put them up on the coffee table. And like, I'm just completely free to be myself. Why? Because it's my home. Now you come into my home and you do that. I'm like, you need to get out of my home. 
Well, when the Holy Spirit inhabited Jesus, Holy Spirit found a home where he could be completely himself. And that's what he desires for us today. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we discussed this last week, so I won't get into this again. But in one sense, you could say it like this. It means that the Holy Spirit is allowed to have more of you. That you are truly availing yourself to saying, God, whatever you have for me to do for you, I avail myself to that. But may the prayer not simply stop at whatever you have for me. Because the Holy Spirit desires to send us, not just to fill us with his blessings, though that's important. And we will talk more about that. And we've talked a lot about that. But it's time for the church to truly be sent in the manner and the fashion that the Holy Spirit always desired for it to be sent. Because the same spirit that anointed Jesus at his baptism is the same spirit that now lives and dwells in you. Those who have said yes to Jesus. In fact, the entire book of Acts is filled with ordinary people doing the stuff that Jesus did. Or we could say it like this, ordinary people filled with the spirit of Jesus doing the stuff of Jesus. Now here, I want to just put this caveat in there because here's where I know for some of you, this this gets a little uncomfortable because there are some of you who, who have been hurt by people who have abused and misused the power of God. And because there were and still are ordinary, imperfect people who God empowers and gives gifts to, which we're going to talk about next week. It's going to all be out. Next week, we'll all be on the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Because of that, there are some of you who have been on the receiving end of some, of some of the abuses that come at the hands of people who misuse and abuse God's power, God's calling, God's anointing, the influence that God allows and extends to, to us. But here's what else I've discovered, though, is that God risks power to reveal his love to us. In fact, Parker Palmer, the, he's still alive today, but in the 70s, he wrote a fantastic book in which he said, here is one of the great acts of love, empowering another person, knowing full well, he's talking about the power of the spirit here, knowing full well that person will probably make serious mistakes with that power, knowing that those mistakes may be costly even to the one who does the empowering. In other words, Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity working together, will empower people knowing that they will misuse that power. They won't always represent his name well. Why does he do it? Because it's a way in which God reveals his love to us. I want to show you I trust you. And I want you to trust me in return. And there's a lot that we could say about that, but I just want to speak to those of you who have been hurt before. And maybe for some of you, you're watching online right now. And as weird as this may sound, I'd venture to say there are a lot of you who are watching online right now who have been abused or seeing the power of God misused, and it's the reason why you're not in the room right now. And if that is you, I want to say, I don't know if I even have the authority to do this, but I'm going to try. <laughs> I'm sorry. I bet you that almost all of us at one point have experienced some misuses of God's power through the hands of somebody else. And I'm sorry. But I also pray that we could be healed of that pain so that we could move forward together and never allow that as an excuse to disobey what we still see in God's word to be true. That being, 
We have an anointing from God. The Holy Spirit has anointed us to continue the ministry of Jesus in one sense. And I'm burdened for many of you, and it's the reason why we're teaching this series, because many of you are desperate for more of the real thing. And I'm excited for many of you too, because I know that many of you are hungry. And in particular, over the last two years, I've just seen a hunger come out after kind of the COVID season, just a hunger for more of the things of God. And for some of us, we've searched for it in the wrong places. And I'm telling you, what what God has for us is the hunger that you really desire, the hunger that will actually satisfy the longing of your soul. I'm also full of hope because God is generous and he is not reluctant to show and give you more of himself when we offer ourselves to him. Now, you and I are not Jesus. It does not take a genius to understand that, but now, as seen clearly throughout the scriptures, we are the body of Jesus, intended together to represent Jesus. And so neither one, not one of us can do all that Jesus did. I don't believe that. Some of you have been taught that. That's not true. But all of us together, it's the reason why we need each other. All of us together, you cannot deny as we look at the New Testament in particular, that we are meant to live life together, humbly leaning into one another, saying you can do what I cannot, I can do what you cannot, and together we can make a difference as we use the gifts that God has given us to be the body of Jesus here on the earth. To take the kingdom of God and push back the kingdom of darkness. That's what we're called to do. But you can't do it on your own, I can't do it on my own, and no individual can. That's why the whole idea of like celebrity Christianity is so far from the heart of Jesus because it puts on a pedestal one person because they speak on a stage to a large crowd of people and we assume that person has all the gifts. No, I'm telling you right now, all I've got is a little bit of a teaching gift, a little bit of a leadership gift. Some of you have a healing gift. Some of you have an administrative gift. Some of you have another, some of you have a teaching gift. Some of you have a gift of prophecy, a gift of affirmation, a gift of encouragement. And it's time that we begin to lean into the individual gifts so that we can be the body the way that Jesus was individually on the earth. We're meant to be his body. Do you understand this? And so there's more that we are called to experience, called to be filled with. If you don't believe me, John said it himself. You have an anointing from the Holy One. You have an anointing from the Holy One. Each and every single individual does. And as we'll discover next week, we are to desire the gifts from God so that we can make a difference in the name of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it like this. If we have what the first Christians had, why don't we do what they did? We must conclude one of two things, that either God gave them more than he has given us or we've just failed to avail ourselves. We failed to take the lid off to what he has given us. And so I want to share just seven things. <laughs> I say, I only want to share seven things today. I want to share, seven, I'm going to go through them pretty quick, but seven things as to what I think holds us back from experiencing the more of God. And what I'm asking for us today is to lean in and, and find yourself in one of these things. You might find yourself in all of them. You might find yourself in only one of them. But as we identify ourselves in some of these things, maybe then we can say, okay, I know what lid, what proverbial lid to take off of my life to experience more of him. The first one is 
I think we've become students, not practitioners. And as a result, it's kept the lid on our lives in one sense. And by that, I simply mean, well, let me explain it like this for the sake of time, because I went a little bit longer in my introduction there than I intended to. Today, there are really kind of, well, this is overly simplistic, but within the church, there are two two kind of categories of, of Christians. There are what we refer to as sensationists and continuationists. Now, if you have no idea what that means, I honestly believe this. You are better for not knowing this. I'm not joking. Because we become students more than practitioners, we want to study the scripture more than we want to allow the scripture to reveal Jesus to us. And there is a time and a place, and it's good to study the scripture. It's good. Do not misunderstand me. I hope if you've been coming here for any length of time, you know that we value deeply studying the Bible and understanding it in its proper context, not misusing it or abusing it or just reshaping it for our own good. No, that's like a prosperity gospel. No, we're trying to lean into the real, like the real thing. And yet here's what this means. A sensationist is those who believe that certain spiritual gifts, usually the more miraculous or supernatural sort, cease to exist today, meaning they just died off. Most of them believe they died off at the end of Acts chapter 28. And yet continuationists, which is where we would fall as a church. Believe that those who believe that all spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament continue to exist and continue to be given by the Holy Spirit according to his will. And according to studies, the reason why most people fall into the sensationist category is because they saw a continuationist misusing and abusing the gifts of God. Yet that should never, as we discussed last week, give us excuse to disobey what we see to be true in the scripture because we saw somebody else misuse the scripture. May we never throw the baby out with the bathwater in one sense. In fact, as we understand this and take this a bit further, let me break it down like this. What the first century Christians did, all we do today is study. And as much as the book of Acts was intended to be studied, yes, it was even more so intended to be an inspiration to us, an encouragement to us. They, the early church, were a lot of power and little talk. Today, we are a lot of talk and very little power. John Stott, who is widely considered to be one of the more reputable 20th century theologians, he he said, what we need is not more learning, not more eloquence, not more persuasion, not more organization, but more power from the Holy Spirit. I have friends who will take the teachings of John Stott, the study of John Stott, and they take it out of context and they begin to say things like, well, John Stott was a cessationist. No, he wasn't. And this is only for a select handful of you right now, but no, he wasn't. Most of these men that study the scriptures so brilliantly that we read about who have died decades, even centuries ago, they were men who considered the spirit of God and the power that came as a result of being filled with the spirit of God essential to their life. And the only reason why they were able to have the revelation they had when they studied the scripture. David Brooks, in his book, The Second Mountain, it's a fantastic book, but he tells a story of how when he was growing up, he loved going to the movie theater. He loved watching movies. And after he received his undergrad, he, he got a job as a movie critic. And he said, he thought, this is the best job a 22-year-old could ever have. And he goes to these movies, and he starts writing his critique of these films. And he said, after about a year, he realized he was no longer watching movies for the joy of them. All he was ever doing was just critiquing them. And he quit his job because 
he was excusing criticism for sophistication. May we never, may we never minimize the Holy Spirit and call it being a sophisticated Christian, call it being a mature Christian. May we never minimize the Holy Spirit and call it coincidence. That's just happenstance. We become students, not practitioners. The second thing is we have a a lack of, of expectation. Sometimes I wonder what it would be like, what Jesus would think if he followed me around all day long. I wonder if he wouldn't look at my life and say, Jordan, you really don't expect much of me, do you? You expect a lot of yourself. You expect a lot of other people. But you don't really expect much from me, do you? Eugene Peterson referring to this idea says hoping does not mean doing nothing and hoping is not dreaming it's not spinning an illusion or fantasy protect us from our boredom or our pain it means a confident alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do it is imagination put in the harness of faith it is a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time and yet again Some of us don't want that though. Some of us don't want God to do it his way and in his time because we want to be in control. We want God, but we want him on our own terms. We want to ask him for things, but we don't ever want him to ask us for anything. But the person who will have more of God must give more of themselves to God. We've got to expect more even of God and allow God to have more of of us. Maybe you fall into that category. You have a low expectation of what God will do with your life and you've even given a low amount of yourself to him. The third thing is we have a low stamina for disappointment. John Wimber, who was a 1970s led a revival in California, is part of the Jesus movement and is also uh, the, the founder of the Vineyard Movement and Vineyard Churches today. He said, I, I would rather lay hands on 100 people and have only one healed than lay hands on nobody and have nobody healed. And yet for many of us, we have such a low stamina for disappointment that we're never willing to really risk it. And yet here's what I know to be true. That the power of the Holy Spirit, if you're taking notes, write this down. I don't have a slide for this. It involves risk, wonder, and disappointment. It involves risk, knowing that it's still up to God, not us. It involves wonder, knowing that God can do far more than we could ever imagine, think, or dream possible. It involves disappointment, knowing that sometimes it's not going to go the way that we had hoped it to go, but it will always go when we step out on behalf of God, go the way that he desires and wills in his bigger picture for it to go. Even the early church, in its glorious beginnings, they had less than 100% success rate. They had significantly less than 100% success rate. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is thrown into a jail cell. His friends gather together and begin to pray. The jail cell was opened. Peter shows up at the very prayer meeting that they were praying for him at. The night before, the disciple, the apostle James, he was thrown into a jail cell. The next day, he was executed. And I don't know why, but neither did the early church. And they didn't try to explain why. They were just practitioners more than they were students. And I think that's what God is calling us to do today, to resist the human propensity to allow our disappointment 
to define our current faith. In other words, to allow something happen externally to define what we believe internally. And the fourth thing, self-centeredness. What stands in our way? Sometimes just our own egos. Sometimes it's our own spiritual apathy in one sense. It's just our unwillingness to step out and to say, God, this is on you, not on me. It's our unwillingness to make it about God and not about ourselves. For the sake of time, I won't read the next two passages. Lane, help me out here in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four. But essentially what I was getting at here is that the book of Acts, as you read it, as you read the story of the early church, it is written like a branded cord. Sacrificial love, supernatural power. Sacrificial love, supernatural power. Sacrificial love for God is demonstrated through love for neighbor. Supernatural power from God. The litmus test for you and I, catch this church, you gotta get this right here because this will always keep us and keep Christians in general from kind of getting weird and wacky about this stuff. The litmus test for the Holy Spirit's anointing and just sheer human fanaticism is whether the individual who is demonstrating that anointing also privately demonstrates sacrificial love for neighbor as a result of being loved by God. If they make it all about themselves, it's all about their power, it's all about more stuff for them, they don't demonstrate sacrificial love for others, they're self-centered. They've, and they're using whatever gift God has given them for their own benefit, but not for the benefit of the church. And that's what gifts are intended to be used for. And so the, the fifth thing is an undiscerned enemy. I think one of the things that stands in our way of experiencing more of the Holy Spirit is an undiscerned enemy. We don't recognize, we don't even give thought to the devil, Satan, our enemy, our adversary. And in one sense, if you're new to church, this is really gonna freak you out. But it's important that we understand this, that there is an enemy. And in one sense, it's good not to give him a whole lot of credit. In another sense, it is naive to assume that we ought never be aware of his devices and his, and his schemes. Who has the most to gain from you gaining least from God? The enemy does. Because if Satan can keep us from coming to Christ, or I should say, if Satan cannot keep us from coming to Christ, he will keep us from coming closer to Christ. Simon Ponsonby, in his book more, wrote that the spirit-filled Christian who has tasted the powers of the kingdom to come, who is fully consecrated to the Savior, loving his presence, listening to his voice, learning his word, available to be used by God, is an awesome weapon in the hands of God to defeat the effects or the kingdom of darkness. The thing that Satan most dreads after having seen us renounce him and receive Christ is that we will in turn be used by God to establish the kingdom of God in the lives recognize that there are times we begin to step out and use the gifts that the spirit of God has given us that Satan, the enemy, will oppose you. He did Jesus. Like Jesus is anointed by the Spirit of God and in Luke chapter four, he's then led by that same Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy, which is gonna mess with all of our theology depending on the tradition in which you grew up in. 
And as he's in the desert, you could assume in one sense that Jesus would think to himself, I've just been anointed by the Spirit of God. God must have now abandoned me just a short period later because now I'm being tempted by the devil. No, the devil's going to come after you when you're using the things that God has given you for his kingdom. Not for, if you're using God's gift just for yourself, if you're using your gift even of influence, using your gift of finance, using your gift of leadership just to make a name for yourself, enemy doesn't care about that. The moment you start using it for God's glory to expand his kingdom, he's going to come at you, which is the reason why some of us kind of step back then and we're like, well, man, this was easier when I just didn't do anything for the Lord. But it's worth it. Again, we'll get more into that specifically in a couple of weeks as we jump into our next series. But we got to be able to discern the enemy. And then six, and we're closing. Just got two more. Six is dysfunctional love. By dysfunctional love, I mean the way in which we love God. In John 15, Jesus said, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me and I remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments remain in his love. Now, many of us interpret this verse and we think that Jesus is just talking about moral commands. If you love me, do what I told you to do. But that's not actually what Jesus is saying because love is always about trust and never about coercion. Coercion, 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 coercion. That sounded so weird when it came out. <laughs> Love is always about trust, never about coercion. And so what Jesus is talking about, now, now catch this right here. This is important for some of us, especially those of us who are really pragmatic. Like my, I would fall into that, that category who just want to do the commands of Jesus because I want to prove to you that I love you. And there's some merit to that. However, what Jesus is really talking about here is the risk of taking him seriously. Because in context, he's speaking the in the final hours of his life with his closest friends, telling them to risk everything for him. What Jesus is saying is, I love you enough to trust you with my name, reputation, mission, and power. I trust you with those things. Now remain in my love. Now how do we do that? By now risking our name, laying down our reputation, our mission, using any influence we've been given for him. But because we have dis, kind of this dysfunctional love for Jesus that's just built out of like, I just got to do it. And then we feel guilty when we don't. When in reality, what Jesus is asking is, he said, no, remain in my love. I've given you so much. Now, I want, I do, I want you to risk your reputation for mine. And when you fall short, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, you can go back to God and receive forgiveness because your gracious, loving Heavenly Father's arms are always wide open. And then lastly, what stands in our way? For many of us, and I think this is probably the one where most of us fall into, we're just, we're unavailable. We're just not available for him. Who does God use? See, God is not concerned or afraid of empowering the disqualified. He's afraid of the disqualified feeling like they deserve to be empowered by him. What he's really after here is those of us who would just say, God, I'm available to you, knowing that I am disqualified, knowing that I haven't earned any of this. Like if you desire more of God, what does it require? A continual, daily, not a one-time, but a daily, God, I'm available to you. You know what God desires more than anything else? Your attention. That's one of the reasons why I think gathering on a Sunday morning is actually so important. 
It's one of the reasons why I think church matters so much because it puts our attention back on him. I'll close with this thought right here. Samuel Chadwick once wrote, the things not surrendered, indulgence retained against light, possessions held for selfish ends, these must all be surrendered to the supreme authority of Christ. For until Christ is exalted, crowned, glorified, there can be no Pentecost. There can be no filling of God's spirit. So for you, church, friends, what stands in your way? Which one of these stands in your way of the Spirit's anointing in your life? What, what causes you to resist that anointing? Where, where do you see yourself in this? Can you imagine what it would look like for a church full of people, kids and adults included, to say, God, I want to make myself available to you? Can you imagine what it would look like for a church full of people, all of us together moving forward saying, Spirit, we want all of you. We want to take the lid off. We want to live in such a way in community among one another. We'd even help each other identify the areas of our lives where we've put the lid on. I I can imagine, but I also can't imagine because I've not seen it before. But that's what the Lord is calling us into as a community and not just here at Ethos, but honestly, as I talk to my friends all across our city, there's this collective yearning that all of us are experiencing saying, Holy Spirit, we want more of you.